Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dead Cat. It's Tom. I'm here with Katie and Eric. The whole family is back here together for Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, so exciting. I feel like Katie like shows up, you know, like, like MTV's Daria and Eric's like arguing with like various cousins over like who can beat who in chess. <laughs> I, and... I have a chess board laid out on my carpet right now with a, with a book. Um, yeah. It's like it's like the people who only go to church on holidays. That's me. I'm just showing up for the podcast on the holidays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm, I don't know, starting various contrarian arguments with different people at the table uh, all at once. But we've got uh, an exciting episode today. So many scandals happening in tech. So many things to <laughs> unpack. So many people to blame and try to understand but basically, as I see, we have two giant stories right now. In one, we've got this cascading series of scandals in a sector that is rife with scams, begging for regulatory involvement and maybe even criminal involvement. And the other is FTX. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I, I knew you were going to set it up that way. Yeah. So so the first thing we've got here, what the fuck is going good. on? Yeah. So what the fuck is going on with Taylor Swift's concert uh, ticket oh, sales? Yeah. Well, I just I, got an alert from the New York Times that the DOJ is investigating Ticketmaster and Live Nation. This is something I don't really understand. I I, I actually listened to the new album because I knew that Eric would, and so I wanted, <laughs> I, wanted I wanted to have that experience with him. Yeah. What percentage <laughs> of your millennial cultural effect <laughs> items are just like studying? Uh, but anyway, yeah, I know Eric it's like true. provides like the millennial <laughs> cultural you know immersion program for Katie. Without Eric, I'd still be listening to Lou Reed. Eric, you probably were trying to buy tickets, right? So you've had oh to my god, the my fiance here, right? is like devastated. I mean, we both were working really hard to try to get tickets, and like, yeah, we're, I mean, it's souring us slightly on Taylor Swift, though she she put out something on her Instagram today. I mean, it's 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 pretty brutal. I mean, it's the solution to it isn't clear. I'm much more in the you know free marketer, like oh, let these things be sold in the secondary for like a ten thousand markup. No, don't don't create this situation where they're so cheap on the, you know, from the primary seller that there are all these people are basically incentivized to flip them. I mean, I think it should just be a pool of ones that are dedicated to fans and they need to do a much better job of making sure those get to fans. And then a pool of tickets that are truly How do you determine who's price. a fan? I was going to say, isn't the whole issue well, they should, the issue around bots and not being able to verify Right, 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 right. That's why I'm like, yeah. they should oh, hook humans. it up. When you say fans, you mean humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should yes. hook it up to like yeah. Spotify... Okay. They should be like, how many fucking Taylor records have you bought? You know, like, I mean, they, they should, and they Taylor should only make sure, people should only be able to get like one, you know, one, you know, one for each person. So I think they just need to do a much better job of, you know, human identification here. Or some sort of a quiz, like in the way they do like a CAPTCHA to understand right, if you're a human. Right, that would be awesome. Do like a fan CAPTCHA. Be mm. like, you know, like which of these lines did not appear in Evermore? Right. Those which of these songs is about which boyfriend? Oh, which that's is, good. Right. Oh, my God. Which of these yeah. songs about Harry Styles? <laughs> yeah, match the line to the boyfriend. <laughs> Who so like, has fuck the, the patriarchy is. still? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> write a, you know, five paragraph essay on why Jake Gyllenhaal is like the worst. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all of these are great <laughs> ideas. I would say much more effective than like DOJ involvement. I think we could solve We We already solved it right here. <laughs> If the answer is Tom Hiddleston, you know it's not a real person. <laughs> right. Yeah, like Taylor Lautner, boyfriend or not boyfriend? Mm. Useless people. Uh, <laughs> I think I think boyfriend, by the way. I think boyfriend. Yeah, I think Twilight Era. Okay. I was I was uh, getting a coffee with somebody who knows 
Josh Kushner, and it took everything in my being not to be like, do you think Carly Claus did date Taylor Swift? <laughs> oh, you, you're, you're aware of Gaylor Swift. This is actually oh something God, I've been supposed course, to I'm ask you. Even I'm yeah. aware, about, Tom. Like, <laughs> I wasn't until Rosa's like coworkers, who is gay and was explaining at length the Gaylor Swift conspiracy. I mean, have theory. you listened to the question? Like, I do think she probably dated Carly Kloss. Like, I think that's more likely than not. But did she date Lena Dunham? I'm skeptical. Hmm. They're photographed kissing each other. You know what I mean? Like, well, that means no. I mean, yeah, come yeah. On. have you heard of was the Madonna? And <laughs> <laughs> but I think that whether or not it happened, the way that it has fueled fan speculation, and I think, can we draw a direct line between something, the question, the open question of whether or not Taylor Swift dated Carly Kloss to this insane collapse of the Ticketmaster ticket system? Maybe. I mean, it's that kind of intrigue that fuels this kind of fan base. Right. You mean, oh, oh, her just being able to, like, play her fans like a fucking violin. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just build up even more intrigue. So, like, oh, maybe she'll have as a special guest, like, one of her Gaylor Swift, you know, conspirators. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, I I have no emotional attachment to her as, as an artist or as a human being. But I don't think she does either, really. She seems like a purely capitalistic marketing product. Taylor? So, yes. No, she's and connected to her fans. What are you talking about? Well, in a way that it benefits her. I'm not even saying this is a criticism. She is like a pure distillation of like late capitalism, you know, in like the marketing of a, you know, very talented artist. But well, anyway, yeah. I mean, the pinnacle yeah. of that, just to give you a little data, is that, you know, like she somehow got her fans invested in her re-recording the albums just so she could make right. the money off right. her masters and not well, someone else. Well, it's because else, we so. understood that she was a victim of Scooter <laughs> right. Braun, and so we had we were forced we were forced to band together to fight. L- life's Scooter all Braun. about cheering for your favorite rich person. I mean, that's right. Exactly. It wasn't like exactly <laughs> to the conversation. Of yeah, the day. it wasn't like oh, we're gonna get great new music from Taylor. It's like mm-hmm. we're gonna get the same old music that's gonna make Taylor mm-hmm. richer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And she that's my investment. We need her to be our billionaire, you know, in a world where that's all that matters, you know. Well, we're down one musician billionaire uh, with with Ye, so I feel, I feel like Taylor should more effectively fill that spot. Yeah, you know, who who would have thought that the Kanye-Taylor fight would have ended here? Oh, I assume she's, like, that was what rocket-fueled her into becoming even more successful. In the same way that, like, Donald Trump ran for president because Obama made fun of him and that one uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner, I assume mm-hmm. Taylor was like, I am going to dominate the music industry because I was embarrassed once at an awards show by a drunk Kanye. I mean, there are worse reasons, sure. All right, so here's what we got on today's episode. It's time that we do a, a, a recapping of where things are with FTX. And I've spent a lot of time in the last week reading all the stories. I even read the entire Milky Eggs post. Uh, <laughs> what? You, you know what I'm talking what? about? No. Oh, there's some blog called Milky Eggs in which there's like a 10,000 word unwinding and speculation on where all the money went. Oh, all okay. of these like things will probably not be relevant. You guys didn't see that? Anyway, uh, all these things will probably be irrelevant once, you know, the full order of, you know, the internal uh, machinations are put forward in the courts. But for the time, you know, there's, there's been a lot of speculation. But anyway, I read all of that. Yeah, it'll be good for you to explain because I, I mean, obviously yeah. we joke on this podcast sometimes about not bringing people along. But I think even sort of the most hardcore sort of tech readers among us would benefit from a little bit of a sort of summation of, of the scandal so far. Oh, a full summation certain, of the scandal not a full from, from day one. But no, 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 no. Okay, Just well, basically where we are right now is that the FTX unwinding since, you know, the Binance selling of the FTT tokens revealed that 
FTX was highly overleveraged. Its main token collapsed in value. There was a huge run on the FTX bank, essentially by all of its depositors. And that revealed that the company had basically, and Sam Bankman-Fried had taken all of the assets that were in there and tried to cover up all the losses that his related hedge fund, Alameda, had been using to cover all of their losses because they had been taking incredibly risky bets. Not just to cover their losses, but to trade, to fund the entire trading arm. Yeah, yeah. Because they had so many losses, right? I mean, I assume they were only dipping into the FTX piggy bank because they were down so much in all of their investments. See, that was something that was unclear to me, whether it was something they did out of desperation or just something that they did to feel the to fuel the trading platform and success of it. Well, I I think Matt Levine made this point, but like what's funny looking back on this is that I think while Sam SBF was sort of in his prime and like everybody worshipped him, the assumption was that he was sort of improperly using information from FTX to become a really good trader at Alameda. And that's why he was so rich. Like he had this sort of inside information. But in fact, he was just using customer accounts from FTX, and he wasn't like a great trader at all, and he was just siphoning all the money to blow it on Alameda on failed trading strategies. It's the very fine line between like a high-frequency trader and a Ponzi scheme, right? Right. Right. So that's, you know, a very quick and dirty explanation of why FTX unwound. And then what happened since then is they've brought in a What's the term? I mean, like an interim CEO, a, a ward. A, a cleanup guy. A cleanup guy. They brought guy. in a cleanup guy. Yeah, they brought in like the adults in the room who basically, if you can imagine the picture here, you know, they fly in this guy into the Bahamas. I imagine he's like walking up into like the FTX <laughs> It's like a scene penthouse. out of like the Pelican brief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He walks into the office. He like takes out his briefcase. He tells his right-hand man like, Schmitty, you know how this goes. I need two gallons of coffee. I need, I need, I need, I need. I need protein. I need carbs every 45 minutes. Let's dig into this thing. And, and then, then he, he dips like, in and goes, holy shit. Yeah, he opens up the <laughs> file and like immediately it. throws up. I mean, this guy dealt with Enron. This guy yeah. was the cleanup guy right. for Enron. Yeah. And then, Tom, do you have it in front of you? He like yeah, put okay. out a statement. Well, it's not a statement. It's in the Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing, which these things, I, I don't know, Katie, if you've read these before when you're covering the 08 collapse, but these are pretty oh, dry yes. documents typically. Oh, yes. They're very lawyerly. <laughs> There's no color in a Chapter 11 filing. There's no killer quotes uh, that come out of it. But this was uh, one of the lines This is pulling directly from the Chapter 11 filing in Delaware. Once again, Delaware is one of the most interesting states because of the scandal. Mm. <laughs> I have over 40 years of legal and restructuring experience. I have been the chief restructuring officer or chief executive officer in several of the largest corporate failures in history. I have supervised situations involving allegations of criminal activity and malfeasance, in parentheses, Enron. I have supervised (laughs) situations involving novel financial structures, parentheses, Enron and residential capital, and cross-border asset recovery and maximization, Nortel and overseas shipholding. I don't know about those, but they were bad too. Nearly every situation in which I have been involved has been characterized by defects of some sort in internal controls, regulatory compliance, human resources, and systems integrity. Next paragraph. Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. He doesn't say they're all fucking each other or like... Uh, Well, you know, that wasn't in the books. That was kept (laughs) entirely off the books. They they, they didn't log that, no. 
Yeah. He's like, also, they were kind there of... There was gross. no HR department, <laughs> Eric. <laughs> yeah. Also, like, also, these beanbags smell, but I'm not going to guess what that's about. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is basically like the, like the cleanup specialist, like the garbage man comes in there and is like, what the fuck is that smell? <laughs> and, and I mean, as I read through the bankruptcy filing, which I actually did read through most of it because it is pretty great reading. One of the biggest takeaways from it, and I think maybe the most shocking that I saw a lot of you know analysts and reporters pick up on, it doesn't seem like they have any idea where the money went. And more so, they don't even know how much money they had. They have no records of the liabilities in there. So when it gets to a point where the people who had their money stored in FTX will reasonably ask, hey, where did my money go? There doesn't seem to be any accounting for that. No. So this was always going to like, yes, just imagine being the type of person that can just be out and about with the knowledge that this is all going to come crashing down someday. Like I, there, there yeah. I mean, maybe I don't want to jump ahead, but like I've seen this is where you get that now. real Madoff vibe, right? This is where I think that that sort of like Bernie Madoff feel really takes hold. No one has any idea what's going on. Nobody knows where any of the money is. It's really just all been a hope and a prayer and like kind of preying on people who have, who are other crypto believers. There's just, it's it's a lot. Anyway, well, You know Slate Star Codex, Scott Alexander? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. He, he had a piece basically like, analyzing the medicine, uh, the drugs that SBF is taking and just sort of wondering whether perhaps like a side effect of these drugs was like a, a gambling <laughs> erratic. Because it is, it's that would a, be a new argument like, against Adderall. Is that like, wow. it's not you know, Adderall. It's, it's some weird, was you he know, not? I it, thought that was it. It was not even I, that. It was no, like, it's like some, Adderall. it's some patch. We can look it up. Well, because he famously SBF, this is, was famously only sleeping like four hours a night. Because right. when he was not, the, you know, the psychopharmacology of the FTX crash. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there was just all what kinds we know of is that he like was designer Adderalls. It's called Celagiline MSAM. I, I mean, I'm, I, I don't take any stimulants. I, people oh, come up so to sci-fi. me, people come up to me and they're like, oh, yeah, I just, I take, you know, it, the way to do a cross country flight is like take an Ambien and then take an Adderall on the other side. I'm like, I'm not living that life i'm, I'm not I'm, just, <laughs> I'm not living I mean, that ambient lifestyle <laughs> i i a caffeine there are people i, mean, I know not, i'm not against drugs only taking horse tranquilizers people, and people like, you know i'm not doing ambient i'm not living can, that ambient lifestyle you can get <laughs> you can get drugs but it's just sort of like i don't know like this sbf thing it's just like where's that gonna lead you know like especially being a reporter it does feel like you need your wits about you, even if you might be, like, marginally happier. Like, I don't want, like, I don't know. I'm well, my not. few times taking Adderall, my experience had typically been that I just felt like my brain was functioning differently. Like, I wasn't thinking in the same way. Well, I was definitely was awake. Functioning differently. Yeah, but it's right. like, my, I, like, my thought processes were not, like, the train wasn't going down the track in the way that I was comfortable with. And I was definitely alert and very awake. There was no denying that. But I never really thought, like, boy, if I had access to, like, a trading terminal, I could blow billions right now. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I already think every idea that I have is, like, gold. So imagine on cocaine. Yeah, you don't, just you don't sort of like, right. <laughs> It's like, let, let's just bullet through them. Let's go. Like, just stop interrupting me. I have a lot to, I have a lot to say right now. Like, yeah, we, we could barely keep you on track during the podcast. Take, you should be taking notes on this. It's like that Billy Crudup from America, from Almost Famous scene where he screams, I'm a golden god. <laughs> that's Eric just on coffee. Yeah, that's just generally. Yeah. 
That's before the ambient. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, that's just me on a scoop. Like at a scoop, I'm like, all right, just. <laughs> yeah, it, when most reporters are like, you know, scoop coming, Eric's is like, I'm a golden god. <laughs> anyway, back on track. So, so, so yes, yeah, he's not sleeping. Drugs, yeah, he's not sleeping when when. But he's not awake. because he feels guilty. Clearly, but continue. <laughs> well, I want to get to that in a second, but mm. but yes. So when he's not sleeping, he's you know he he's on the he's on the grind. And apparently he's really shitty at League of Legends, which is my favorite of all the twists in all of this, because there was this kind of like ongoing theme that he was like playing League of Legends in the background while speaking to reporters and mm-hmm. you know his investors and shit like that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I think it was the FT or someone else revealed that his ranking on League of Legends is actually extremely mediocre. He's a bronze something or other. Yeah. Yeah. So this like the fraud goes incredibly deep with this guy. <laughs> Um, but apparently he had taken out a $1 billion loan on some of the assets here. It's not really clear where he spent the money on, although FTX had bought houses for some of the people at the company. But what's clearly going to be happening over the next couple of weeks is trying to answer the question of like where the money went. Well, that's also interesting because in that report that you referred to, there's also indications that he was taking the money, even as he knew his firm was collapsing and siphoning it out <laughs> through... <laughs> different entities in the Bahamas. So nobody knows if he was taking things on his way out the door either. Yeah. Right. I do think people, I mean, I think we're going to get into the the interview with Vox, but there is a little bit of, it's like he probably took the money. You know, he's like, He's not There's admitting a sociopathic that. Like, vibe. I, I think people, even though this guy is like clearly lied every which way, there's still sort of a desire to assume he's telling the truth in any given interview, even though it's like, at this point, how can you trust a word this guy says? Right. Mm. And so at this point, aside from these apparent tweet threads that he's been putting together, in which the first one was just the spelling out of the word, <laughs> what happened? Uh, right? And then followed by some sort of a thread that maybe tried to give some explanation as to what went down. He first gives an interview to the New York Times David Yaffe Bellany, uh, who's like the crypto reporter over at the Times. David got a lot of shit for this story because people felt that they were not pressing him hard enough. And there was kind of a quote in there in which they were like, oh, are you sleeping well these days? I don't know how you guys feel about that story. I guess, Katie, you know, you, you know, David. So, you know, I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, but I thought the story was fine. I thought he came off like a psychopath. Was yes. my interpretation right. of it. It's like, I don't know how much more the fraud and malfeasance is so evident here. I don't know how much browbeating right. like, well, a like journalist a certain, needs to do. It's like a certain type of person who is so mad at Maggie Haberman because they just want her to put after every line she reports. And that is very bad. You know, it's right. just sort of like, can't the reader read it and be like, ooh, this... Se-. I mean, I do think the New York Times could have been a little more negative. And I think that sometimes you can get lost in like, well, we've done, we put out a body of work. There are several different stories. This one story doesn't sum everything up. But like, overall, I do think it's like, yeah, obviously you're supposed to read this interview and be like, this guy is like fucking, yeah. you know. He gave him enough rope to hang himself. I don't right. know how else to say. Like, right. you know, it starts off with like, you know, Sam, you just lost people nine billion dollars. <laughs> I'm actually sleeping better than I ever have before, David. <laughs> <laughs> have, have the lambs stopped crying, David? <laughs> the more the more billions I lose, the better I sleep, David. Like, it's all right there. Right. It's like, you don't need like a body language expert to come in and analyze the person who confessed to a murder. 
Like, right. It's, it's, it's bizarre. I, I mean, people just want to hate. I mean, obviously, you know, the people shitting on the New York Times were like the Kraken CEO and the Coinbase CEO who both had negative coverage from the Times. And I guess to the extent I would defend them, you know, it's just like people get almost like more mortally angry in some ways about, you know, Coinbase not doing enough to include sort of minority employees than, you know, maybe SBF sort of defrauding people of billions of dollars. And so I think it's just sort of the tenor and tone of different types of stories and sort of how Twitter can react. But obviously, my point is just these are two CEOs who were covered negatively by the New York Times, and they're happy to look for an excuse to dunk on the New York Times. There is certainly a huge media aspect to the SBF story and a failing on the part of the media in the way that he was covered over the last couple of years. This is not a good example of it. There is a feeding frenzy right now on this guy. Every single aspect of this person's life is going to be mined into content uh, because it's an incredible story. It is one of the great scandals of our time. The the crypto people want to play it like the media is not going to willing to go after him. But really, it's like, no, it's like the media is happy to go after one of their own. In this case, if it makes for a great story. Right, it's a great story. Anyway. Yeah, so so that was was the first interview that he gave. And then I guess the real coup de grace was he had an interview with Kelsey Piper, who is a reporter. Who is herself like an effective altruist person and a reporter. There is, so this was, uh, he he slid into her DMs. and had uh, an hour-long conversation with Kelsey Piper in which And he it seems is- like they were friends in some way, or they had a rapport. Or he certainly had a rapport or trusted her enough to have this totally insane back and forth. Right. I mean, yeah. truly one of the Listen, most self-destructive things I've seen on Twitter, Katie, which is Katie, shocking. If, Katie, if you steal billions of dollars and I check in on how you're doing and ask what's going on, you need to at least say we're off the record, all right? <laughs> I'd be like, call me. I mean, I don't care how good of friends we are. Give me are. a ring. Like, a billion dollars, like a huge, you should at least like be like, yeah. Erica, I just want to be clear. We're, this is not report, you know, it's just like, there's, there's got to yeah. be a threshold. I don't care how, not, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know. There's some limit of just like, if you become a criminal, you know, like, I, mean, I don't know how much I might loyalty. not even return your call, Eric. Right, exactly. <laughs> You might be hearing from my lawyer. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I encourage readers to go and read the article because there was a kind of funny back and forth between them in which he has like a very casual style in which he's DMing him and being like, like, what was going on? I'm not calling her out for saying like. I'm just saying that this is the kind of casual strategy. Yeah, yeah, it was a very, yeah, I guess he was, she was really luring him out. But he also seemed like he was desperate to talk. Right. Uh, You know, the idea that he was, you know, had his confidence completely you know, subverted by by this reporter here just doesn't really align with the fact that this guy's desperate. That's what kind of crazy people do is they want their, you know, tales of daring do and manipulation to be out there for people to admire. We've lost Katie because by the time this episode comes out, you will understand the reason why. Just uh, yes, Katie, appointed a special counsel because they're chickens, uh, but or whatever. Katie thinks they have a good reason, but she has to go report on that. Um, yeah. So so we've lost uh, Katie for the rest of the episode. Happy Thanksgiving, Katie. Well, so, you know, effective altruism obviously is this philosophical movement based in utilitarianism where, and largely funded by Sam Bankman Freed, uh, that was sort of donating with an eye towards sort of the future, worrying about pandemics, worrying about things that cause the most human suffering. So that's, that's effective altruism. And in this exchange, 
he sort of plays it off like he was never a true believer and that it was all just sort of a PR stunt. He disabused people of the notion that he believed in any of the things that he had been saying. And I, uh, I, I mean, the and real that question, includes his belief in regulation of crypto and then also this just general philosophy of effective altruism. Both of those, he kind of says, were PR stunts. But yeah, on the matter of you know regulation, he texts the reporter, it was all just PR, fuck regulators, they make everything worse. And then, actually, I didn't pull out the specifics around effective altruism, but I guess his point was that the idea, like you're saying, the, the argument of effective altruism is that in a situation in which there is a good usage of money and a bad usage of money, I guess all things considered, you should be spending that money on people who know how to spend it on good things, right? There's so much more to it than that. I mean, effective altruism has one key component of it is that while like a lot of sort of charitable mindsets might say you should like give as much of your money as quickly as you can, effective altruism can allow for the idea that you should try to make a lot of money so that you can then give it away. And anyway, I SBF sort of disavows it some, and I think there are going to be all these questions around, and we're going to get way too in our heads about it, whether he's trying to protect effective altruism by sort of slowly distancing himself from it so this doesn't become the sort of case study that ruins effective altruism or if he was never sincere. And then, I mean, there are ways to read, you know, I, I think we talked about this on with a little bit in the episode with Teddy where, you know, going for broke or like trying to get, you know, flip, keep flipping coins, right, and gambling everything that there, there are some people in the EA world who think you should just keep flipping because, you know, the world really requires a huge sum of money to save it. So then you just, like, go for broke and try to get as much money as you can. So there's a certain lens in which effective altruism itself is the motivation for sort of gambling. For what he did. Right. Because anything below that level of money is ineffective. Right. And you're not going to be able to achieve right. the results that right. are necessary to and improve And you're the not world. willing to, you know, like we've talked about before, you know, these moral intuitions are sometimes about biting the bullet and saying, like, no, like, it's not about, like, sort of, you know, human beings want to minimize risk, right? It's just sort of in our evolutionary psychology. It's, well, you know, you don't, you want to, you don't want the downside to be too bad, even if the upside would be revolutionary. And so some of effective altruism is saying, no, I look at the world clearly, I'm doing the calculus clearly, and clearly the risk is worth the reward, and so I'm going to do it. And so there's this, there's a sort of view of the whole SBF saga as, him sort of, and now the guy clearly, I mean, once everything fails, we start viewing him much more psychologically and less as a rational actor. And so I think now the lens is going to be much more like, like we were referencing sort of drug use, like how cogent was he, blah, 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 rather than this is the ultimate rationalist who, you know, pursued sort of a great strategy. Right. I mean, if he was, he would have at least done his accounting right, you know. Right. And there's no excuse for that. You can say it's important to take big risks because that's the only way to achieve the results required to make substantial But, but then the book should be clean and it should be right. like, well, on this day, I like put there's it no all on There's no upside to the risk of know? having <laughs> shitty books. Right, right. That's just careless. And I think right. that's kind of what, you know, the, the new CEO and arbiter of FTX is, is trying to deal with here. But look, I, I think there's a part of his entire unraveling that is a pure distillation of the utilitarian mindset, right? 
it's like better for me to have had this money and try to funnel it towards good than the people that had this money that wouldn't have known what to do with it. Right. I mean, I don't know how cynical all the people in that movement really are, but it's within like the spectrum of their belief system that this type of action was like within the bounds. Right. I mean, it's like it's condoned by a kind of utilitarian right. mindset. And, you know, there, you know, somebody was writing to me and reminding me of my own old like philosophy classes. I mean, there is, you know, like rule utilitarianism, this sort of belief that you can't just abandon ethical precepts because fundamentally adhering to those moral rules will create the best good. And that if you totally abandon any sort of like, oh, you should be honest, you shouldn't steal from your customers in, you know, chasing some great outcome that maximizes for utilitarianism, that is sort of the thinking of, you know, a fraudster where you're like, right. you know, I alone can sort of see the great outcome and therefore I should break all these rules in favor of that outcome. And, and clearly human beings just aren't really equipped. So I'm much more of a rule utilitarian, just a maximizer. Which, by the way, as a side point to all of this, is why it is pretty hysterical that it's possible that Kelsey Piper, the reporter at Vox, betrayed or had like a breach of trust with right. SBF. exactly. Because that was a purely utilitarian, like, look, I right. was given this information capital. Right. Right. Uh, the best amount of good I could do with that is to disseminate widely because I believe that what you've done is wrong. So now, I don't think she did Live by the sword, die to be by clear, the sword. To be clear, it's funny what you're saying, but there's no allegation that Sam said it was off the record. So it's just, did he, she betray a friend? So that's basically where we're at uh, with SBF. There's going to be, you know, a, a, like I said, a feeding frenzy of reporters examining every aspect of how this company was run. I saw there was a profile in Forbes of the CEO of Alameda, who's an interesting character in all of this, potentially his girlfriend. Um, you know, as more filings come forward, we'll finally start to learn more of like where all the money went, which hasn't been fully disclosed. I really want to hear from his parents. I mean, that's his parents are like legal experts. They're law professors at Stanford. And they, they did help him set some of this up, right? Or I should be careful. They come up in the filings, actually. So no, you're not too far. Uh, you're not going too far with that one. I know that as things began to uh, unwind, he did consult his father. Uh, that's a that's a tough call to make to tell your right. dad, I really fucked up. Uh, I got nine billions in liabilities that I, I can't really account for. But yeah, no, his dad is going to be for sure called into you know, whatever, whatever. If I were making the TV show, I mean, that would be the central conflict. I mean, on the one hand, I don't, I don't know anything about his parents. So I can imagine them being very sort of establishment or, I mean, they're Stanford people and I am skeptical. Like, I feel like Stanford <laughs> is an institution yeah, of like... Yeah, what Stanford exactly are you talking about? Is it the Peter Thiel Stanford? Is it the right, Federal exactly. Review Stanford? It, or is I mean, it this the, is like, a school founded by robber barons. You know, it's like... It, there's a reason Silicon Valley is much more aligned with Stanford than sort of the Ivy League, which is more sort of institution maintaining. You know, Stanford, Stanford does have an incredible history. They have a real, you know, ghouls list of alumni that, uh, I mean, SBF dropped out of Stanford, right? So I guess they can disown them as far as that but goes. But there's nothing more Stanford you could be than a dropout. Yeah, especially if you're in the Peter Thiel mold. Uh, oh, speaking of the Peter Thiel world, one aspect of this, and this goes a little bit back to effective altruism, is I saw that you know, one of the people trying to make uh, a real hay out of this whole scandal are uh, David Sachs and people in his orbit. And I did pull. Uh, I he wants to talk about everything but the midterms right now. But uh... but the midterms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but he had some tweet that I that I caught on TechMeme, which was that the biggest con man since Madoff just admitted that woke is virtue signaling game, quote, where we say all the right shibboleths. And so everyone likes us. 
How stupid does the New York Times feel now? I understand that everything through this guy's worldview, Saxon I'm talking about, <laughs> is about woke. And and it's the only it's it's like the laziest term, but he just assumes that everything that is like altruistic is woke. I really don't refer. I wouldn't refer to effective altruism as being woke. Right? They're it, it like seems fairly uh, anti woke. Yeah, a lot of the woke people hate it because they're like, ah, eh, let everybody now die because right. people's lives. You know, we have to worry about all lives and future lives would be saved by deferring the money to do You know, there, there are lots of woke people hate it in a lot of ways. Also, yeah, the whole woke thing is a scam. You know, like, there, there are barely any woke people anymore. Um, right, I'm also, like, after the midterms in which, like, people that ran explicitly on the anti-woke agenda just got, like, creamed. Right. I don't know how much I would, like, spend. Also, I don't know how much I'd invest in that stuff. David, David Sachs is out there acting like the fact that the Biden administration wants to resolve the Ukrainian-Russia war is, like, some victory to him. Like, he's tried to set it up. I don't know. I don't want to go down this whole rabbit hole, but I just want to put it on the record that I think it's absolutely absurd that David Sachs thinks he should get credit for any sort of, like, you know, like, like what? They were just going to blow Russia off the map? Like, obviously, at some level, like, there would be a negotiated settlement and that that might not include... Crimea. Anyway, sorry. This is just, I, this doesn't drive you insane. I, I, he's so disingenuous about what he gets credit for. You don't think um, the Defense Department is listening to All In and he's <laughs> looking at his tweets and like deciding, you know, with all the like chiefs of staff, Joint right. chiefs of staff, well, whether or well, not they're like, going to continue funneling arms to Ukraine? Obviously, they're not. So he didn't persuade them. So it's more just like he's annoyed that he, basically he wanted to voice it earlier, whereas other people were a little more deferential to the U.S. State Department to just figure it out as as this was a live situation. Well, I, everything now, especially viewed through Twitter, like the people that respond to your tweets, is a battle between you and your haters, right? right. And I'm, I'm assuming, I don't follow him, but I'm assuming that every time he tweets out, you know, that there should be like a truce negotiated between the you know, Ukraine and Russia, he has like an army of people in his replies just like shitting on him for it. And certainly, I mean, the great thing about Twitter is you can bait people who hate you into overextending their own position by sort of articulating a right. position that people but want to But he thinks that, on. like, his replies is the discourse. Like, he really thinks that is the national conversation. He, he's just a disingenuous arguer and it's well, inferior. Okay, so all of this then is actually a perfect transition into the other thing we're going to talk about on this podcast, which is Twitter. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> because... <laughs> Everything devolves to a conversation about yeah, Twitter. Uh, thinking that the people that are in your replies is the world. And that is like how business works. That is how politics works. That is how like the economy works. Seems to have been the main miscalculation that Elon Musk had <laughs> when he bought Twitter. So let's just give a quick recap on where things are right now, because it is fairly insane. I, I want to read the uh, fresh off the presses. Uh, he tweeted this 30 minutes ago. This is Elon, Elon? Musk. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Elon Musk. New Twitter policy is freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. Negative hate tweets will be max deboosted and demonetized. So no ads or other revenue to Twitter. You won't find the tweet unless you specifically seek it out, which is no different from the rest of the Internet. So basically, he's ended up to where things already were. But like, well, the ultimate question is just what are negative hate tweets? And it's just. But he uh, said it's not going to be boosted, right? Isn't that the exact complaint about Max shadow banning? Max de-boosted. Yeah. So okay. it's, it's not even. Shadow ban. He's basically saying right. we're going to be shadow yeah, banning yeah, hateful yeah, tweets. Exactly. Congratulations, Elon. Right. You ended up as to where Twitter was before you <laughs> bought the company. The thing right. that forced you to buy the company is where you've ended up. Uh, okay. Let's see. You if we reinstated can do Babylon B. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, his work here is done. 
Uh, okay, so here is my understanding of where things are at Twitter over the last week or so. And this is clearly, a, you know, a quickly moving story. Earlier this week, which is going to be last week by the time people listen to this episode, he laid off half of the company. So 50% or so of the 7,000 people that worked at Twitter were given notice, marching orders. And honestly, I mean, Twitter without Elon was probably still going to lay off like 30%. Yeah, you know, in, this, like, in this economy with Meta yeah. and, 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 yeah. and Amazon and everyone, everyone but Google and Apple laying people off. Yes, there were probably layoffs to come, but he laid off 50%, which is pretty dramatic. No and it's good. Off. It is good to do it all once. I, I think there there's good. It's good to have a sense of realism. Anyway, I just, yeah. I don't want to just And people were expecting everything. that. People were expecting right. that. There was a complete debacle with Twitter Blue, which was a subscription service that he was going to make. I don't even want to go into Twitter Blue. It's kind of old news yeah. now, but yeah. that that didn't work out yeah. well. Reporters are salty, you know. Right. And then, and then so the most recent, uh, at the time of recording this podcast, controversy has been, he basically gave an ultimatum to the remaining employees saying, you're either in or out. He gave them like the Jerry Maguire speech. You have to, you have to testify that you're willing to be extremely hardcore. Otherwise, we'll give you three months severance, and you can go on your way. And turns out, three months severance sounds great. Like I, no, I, yeah, it's just like, I, it's yeah, better, better than most of the layoffs right, that other companies right. are doing. Yeah, and I, so so hundreds of people took him up on the three months offer. It was way more than he was expecting. There sounded like there were emergency, desperate meetings to keep some of the essential, you know, top engineers, top product people, uh, I don't know, some some marketing people, keep them on board. It's unclear how that played out. There was like this cascading series of like salute emojis inside the Twitter Slack channels. I love people, that. Were, yeah. people were signing off. And this was not, I guess, what Elon was expecting. I want to say, I want to have According on the to here. the line New York Times. You know. Right. Well, but I do want to say, and I said, uh, it, this probably is still in my tweets somewhere. When it was coming out that Elon was buying the company, I put out a poll and I said, what percentage of Twitter employees do you think are going to quit the company? And it was like 10%, 20%, 40%. The lowest responding answer was 50% plus. And I guess you could debate, you know, layoff versus like people voluntarily leaving. But like, there was a huge fucking issue with people not wanting to work at the right. Elon Musk owned Twitter. And I don't see why more people weren't willing to expect that. I, I don't right. know. I, I don't. Yeah. It just like it seems so clearly obvious that anyone who was going to come in and buy this company strictly for ideological reasons was going to run into this problem. Well, there was a great tweet storm from a f recently departed Twitter employee. There was just like Elon didn't articulate sort of a grand vision. You know, it is not Tesla in SpaceX. Right. You know, so it's like, what are you fighting for? What am I going to be hardcore for? Right. And, you know, it's there is sort of like, which political vector is Elon really aligned with? And like, what are the goals of Twitter? And like, what does it stand for? I mean, his, this is where his like incoherency about free speech and like his mo moderation policies and whether he's trying to satisfy the middle or sort of the Joe Rogan class or what 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 exact constituency does he believe with believe in and align with besides his own off the cuff control? It's hard to get people to rally around you who want to believe in a cause, you know. Right. And his inability to articulate this has actually been a major major problem with with his ability to get allies. Yeah, because he wasn't able to answer the central question that people had, which is why are you buying this company? Because there were two arguments. One is that it was an underwhelming, underperforming business that is totally true. 
Twitter has been like an absolute mediocrity as a, as, as a business for as long as it's been around. And then there's the like, this is an essential part of free speech and it's shirking its duties by shadow banning cat turd or whatever. And these two visions are potentially in conflict. Like, I think he and the billionaires and non-billionaires in his, you know, text threads truly believe that this was an entire company made up of like Tucker Carlson's version of Taylor Lorenz. Right. It was just a bunch of like weepy, woke snowflakes right. just seeing, you know, negative tweets, crying about it and banning people. And and that was the entire company. It wasn't full of engineers or product people or people trying to keep the business running. It was just, you know, woke idiots. And I, I just he, he he one, that's not a great reason to buy a company anyway, but also clearly he was wrong. And, right. and once he realized that people didn't want to work there anymore, he realized that they actually did have essential value. Right. So, I mean, I, I will say we kind of touch on this a bit with the Teddy episode, but I'm dying to know the other side of the story here because in one sense, this is a reporter's dream, right? It's incredibly dramatic. We have this character in Elon Musk who reporters don't like, you know, just generally politically, they're right. not aligned with him. And so it's, you know, it's like a fucking, you know, I keep using the term like feeding frenzy. Uh, especially with sources that are dying to offload all the bullshit that's going on inside each of the company. But Elon doesn't have any PR apparatus around him, right? From what I read in the New York Times story, they do not have a comms department right, right now. So there is no contrasting narrative to what's going on right now. So that's sort of the reality that's going to get out there because no one is able to push back on it. Well, yeah, I, I, so I, it's so negative about Elon on Twitter right now, right? There's a mood on Twitter as if there's going to be sort of a fail whale this evening, and that's sort right. of going to be the end of it. And so I think empirically, I am interested in how likely is Twitter really to crash without sort of the staffing. I think there is an argument that the left is being a little histrionic on that histrionic. And like, maybe it doesn't crash and it keeps operating. And I mean, if, if the worst that happens is Twitter is slow to, you know, improve, <laughs> that will be just like the old Twitter. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking back to Barbarians at the Gate and the whole era of leveraged buyouts, which yeah. is essentially what this is, right? It's, you know, we make it into something kind of mysterious and 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 whatever evil. But in fact, this is kind of a standard right. in, in process, like a leveraged buyout. But during a leveraged buyout, the new owner of the property who let, you know, lay it up with debt and, and all that stuff, they typically work with management in order to kind of keep some semblance of transition before right. they go, you know, start going through and, and like ripping out all the, you know, drywall and shit. But that wasn't the case here, right? He comes in day one and fires the CEO, fires the CFO, like a popular head of legal, all the kinds of people that you probably would have needed to have like an orderly transition of right. power because he wanted to be, you know, like a new page and dramatic new ownership. And that uh, that's just not how these things are typically done. Like there is a playbook of leveraged buyouts and he just decided to abandon it in favor of what he thought Twitter needed, which was like dramatic action. Right. And it just fucking blew up. I, I mean, I, I don't know. There's no other way to really see it. Right. And I think there's an argument that Elon's management style works for SpaceX and Tesla because people are true believers. You can right. sell them on the mission. They know what it's for. You know, it becomes sort of a cult. Whereas, you know, Twitter... Twitter exists, so you need to really give people a vision of what, what they're building for sort of different than today. It's also a lot of white-collar jobs, right? Like, these people have skill sets that right. are pretty easily transferable to other companies, 
and they have more money. So they're not as desperate to stick with the job because they don't, you know, they don't need it as much. Um, and, you know, I've seen the argument made out there that the people that are staying are staying because they have to pay bills, you know, like they don't have that much money. Right. Well, and in the worst case, they have visas. And so they're sort of, I mean, this, this speaks to some of the problems with the visa program that, you know, people can't walk with their feet, which is a key part of capitalism. Like you should be allowed to leave your job and go to another one when you don't like management. And there's something abusive about employees who are on visas being trapped at a particular company and it goes against right. sort of the freedom that's part of capitalism. Right. So I guess like in closing out this episode, and it's an impossible question to answer, but it's really the only question to ask, which is like, where where does this go at this point? What happens? Because I see like a couple of paths. I mean, one possibility is that he just unloads this thing. He just, you know, somehow, you to know, who? Takes, well, I don't know, some sort of private equity firm that probably should have been responsible for the LBO in the first place. It would be place. such a loss. Like, I almost think the opposite, that he is tanking the reputation. He gets the debt down to like 40% or something. Then he buys even more of it and he owns it. And then on a, on the cost basis of the his new ownership, he could actually sort of come out okay. Sure. If you manage to make it a purely profitable company. I mean, the typical way a leverage buyout works is that you slash a ton of costs, you lay up with, with a ton of debt, and then you relist it as a public company. And like this new leaner, meaner version of the company is more profitable. And maybe you can make it, you know, up you know, right. on the public market. The valuation hit has just been so bad. It's such a terrible time. Well, especially the price it. that he paid right. for it. But I can see like ideologically where he's going here, which is that he had a great plan, but all of the woke Twitter employees ruined it for him. I want to read a tweet that I think is emblematic of the, I don't know, certainly the Mark Andrews. This guy is citing a book Mark Andreessen loves at the moment, so that's why I'm connecting to him. But Antonio Garcia Martinez, the author of Chaos Monkeys and okay. sort of a ally, ally of the... I don't know, dark enlightenment, or I don't know if he would agree with that, whatever. He's on often on the right, though he's he's been aligned with the left on Ukraine. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's, he's one of them. He says, what Elon is doing is a revolt by the entrepreneurial capital against the professional managerial class regime that otherwise everywhere dominates, including in especially large tech companies. And that same PMC, professional managerial class, which includes the media, is treating it as an act of less majesty, majesty, less majesty. In Burnham's formulation, this is James Burnham, the author of The Managerial Revolution. In Burnham's formulation, this new managerial class would supplant the former business-owning bourgeois and even capital itself as the elite ruling class. Most woke labor scandals in tech are an entitled middle management class at odds with founders. I think that's very true. You know, most woke labor scandals in tech are an entitled middle management class at odds with founders. I mean, the media is basically talking to employees and parroting them. Now, partly because founders have decided to talk to the media less. But yeah, I mean, this, this is sort of what's happening. Or what do, what do you make of these tweets? I, buy, I would buy that argument as true, but also entirely avoidable. Because if these guys are so tapped into the mindset of the PMC and their woke agenda, they could have anticipated all of this. They could have had a, a honeymoon period coming into the company in which they, you know, 
yes, lured them into. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have been that fucking hard. Manipulate them. Aren't you supposed to be the winners? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because like this is the fucking free market that you're defending <laughs> here. It's like if there is a great business beneath all of it, then it should be able to withstand all of these, you know, woke PMCs. Right. If, if 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 the problem that Twitter had was that there were too many people at the helm that were thinking about, you know, the the emotions rather than like the cold hard facts of what a great business is, then this shouldn't matter. You should be able to root these people out and and bring in a new group of, you know, based engineers who can bring Twitter to where it should have been. But you also shouldn't have even gotten there. You could have eased these people out of the company with a three week honeymoon period that would have gotten rid of a lot of these or that would have done away with a lot of these issues. So, no, I, I, I totally reject that argument because one, I I just don't think it withstands any sort of economic test. Because if there's a great business model here, I don't see it yet. And it just doesn't seem like there was a plan. Um, but yeah, sure, I do agree that like woke scandals are the result of, of you know, middle management uh, uh, stirring shit up. But like a scandal is not the same thing as a business problem. And right now he has a business problem, right? I mean, like he's, he's actively alienating advertisers. Right. Well, the, I'm sure the argument would be ad advertisers are in cahoots. I mean, they're trying to sell their products to as many people as possible. Like my, my, my objection to it, or first of all, it's just setting up a case where we're supposed to somehow root for like the capitalist class. You know, it's like, oh, we call them entrepreneurial capital. You know, it, it's just like founders, whatever, you know, they do represent, they're the ultimate elites who are trying to pretend like they're not. Um, uh, I don't know. We should bring him on. I, I'm happy to have I mean, a, I love, yeah, that'd be AGM good. on good. here and, and argue this case uh, he likes more directly. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm surprised we haven't asked him yet. Honestly, he he might be the one, you know, non-coward among them. Well, I'm dying to hear more people defending Elon because I, I certainly sympathize with any perspective that is like, boy, this is a very one-sided story right now. Yes. I mean, but I the media was desperate. Like, I'm sure they would interview Elon. That's that's the one thing. I mean, I get that the media would probably interview them under their frame, but People are hungry to still to hear from these CEOs. And well, but if you listen to these people, especially ones that are on the All In podcast, they argue that talking to the media isn't is of itself like an act of treachery. It's 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 pointless to do. And so but it, it's just not very it's, it's not fair if you're like, well, the media is dominated by workers. It's like, well, if workers are the ones talking to the media, then that well, makes sense. You know, this is a topic that we may be revisiting uh, in future episodes right. because it, whether it's AGM or other people that are in that orbit. I'd love to hear I'd love to hear from them because I personally, as a reader of these stories, I've not done any sort of reporting. I do feel like it is incredibly one sided. But unfortunately, that's the one side that's talking. <laughs> right. And I don't know what else a reporter can do. And there are way more of them. And, and, and employees believe all sorts of different things. I just think reducing it's convenient to reduce workers to a class because then Elon, who is one person, mm -hmm. is on equal footing with, you know, the thousands of angry employees, you know, and, and hundreds or more of angry advertisers. You know, it it is like there, there are these masses of, and then there's also the public, right, that has its points of view. And somehow, given that Elon embodies the single class, he's supposed to count, you know, for so if, much. If he merits his placement in that class, he should show it by being an effective manager. <laughs> like if if you deserve all of the extra privileges that come with being in the entrepreneurial class, show it. Show me how you've managed to Win. You know, <laughs> navigate this controversy yeah. in a way that proves your point. Because right now, it doesn't seem like there was a fucking plan. Like, that's I mean, that's, sort of, that's the Sam Bankman-Fried ideology that comes through in the DMs. It's like, 
people are chill with Binance now because he's a winner and I'm a loser. And ultimately, people like winners and they don't like losers. And like morality is almost like subservient to that. It's like you can say the shibboleths that people want, but ultimately, you know, you need to you need to win. Yeah. I mean, I, I, saw, I don't know that I think Binance is going to continue to win. I think people have been a little too pro-Binance lately, but um, anyway. Yeah, sorry. I mean, being That's like a, the last person standing in a crumbling field doesn't right. mean you're in a great position. No, I look, I actually think in, in so many respects, I know like as the, the Twitter, Elon Twitter thing was closing in on taking place, your argument had been like, let's put the right yes. ideas to the test. Yes, let them <laughs> like, rule. Let's let, see it. Like, right. especially on Twitter where it's like, okay, we can give that up. It's not like all of America. You know, I'm not saying let the right rule the United States, but I am saying, fuck, give them Twitter and let's see it. Let's yeah. run it, run it, you know, like. And so I'm actually willing to like, let's let this experiment run a little bit longer. I think people that are talking about the death of Twitter right now are probably jumping the gun. There seems but to I be enough money to keep question. the lights on. This is the question for the right. If Twitter dies because like the left abandons it and everybody leaves and like the managerial class doesn't do the work, whose fault is it? Like, I feel like they somehow believe that it's still the left's fault. Even though they're in charge of it, they had to pull the levers to make it work. If basically they lose because the left like mounts a resistance, does the right and Elon sort of get off scot-free because right. he's just going to blame the left? Well, I, that's what I, I'm saying. That's what they're, they're clearly starting to coalesce around that argument. Which is absurd. Right. Okay. Now, I yeah, I mean, ultimately you're in charge. You... You're supposed to be savvy enough to know the psychology of the left and manipulate it and get your ends. Like you can't just whine and say, "Oh, these people are irrational." Like that, all hum humans are irrational. You know, you have to navigate that. That's part of part of leadership. Yeah, because the prevailing sentimentality and posture that people want to take these days is the victim. It doesn't right. matter what position you are in class, in, you know, in 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 your business, in your class, you want to be the victim. It's the it's the default place for people. Nobody to be. wants to be the elite. <laughs> You were literally running the company. You were signing the checks, and yet you were the victim of, of a system that you have just now declared, or prior to now, declared as being anti-capitalist and anti-market. And I don't know what to tell you, buddy. You just bought the store. Right. Like, it's your problem. Yeah. Figure it out. Stop whining, you know? Like, pull yourself up by your fucking bootstraps. Yeah. So let's just let this play out a little bit longer. Uh, you know, if Twitter goes down, it would... I guess, prove someone's point right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I guess my my perspective is that Twitter will probably be around for another couple of weeks. Uh, <laughs> you know, the worst of the bloodletting right. will, will, will pass. I and think then, people's expectations for the implosion are too too big. You know? Especially the people who are leaving because they probably want to think, man, and look at all these people sucks. around me. It's like people who shit on the United States and then they go to Paris and it's like it's dirty and they only have one cuisine. You know, it's like... New York's great. Like, Twitter is better than the alternative, unfortunately. Like, yeah. that's the reality. In the world in which you have to participate in these things. Right. Well, don't go live in fucking Macon, Georgia, you know? I don't even know where to leave this one other than uh, I think this topic, we extend an open invite to anyone who wants to explain Elon's managerial style. I know. We, we like to fight. I, yeah. I do think the cowardice uh, from some on, on, on the right is, is We reached out to not a small number of people for this episode and we'll continue to going forward because uh, I do believe it is a one-sided story being told right now. I'd love to hear the the pro Elon side. Uh, we maybe have some guests coming up that can help a little bit on that perspective. But um, to all listening out there, if you have some people that you know that can speak positively and with personal 
anecdote on uh, Elon's leadership style and why it's great, uh, we're, we're open. Please email us, uh, you know, DM, well, you can DM Eric, you can message me, uh, deadcatshow at gmail.com. Uh, we want to hear from you. Great. All right. All right. Well, this is fun. Thanks a bunch. Right. Thanks. Before we go, we do want to give credits to the people that make this show possible because we do not do it enough. But engineering the show is our great new sound engineer, Tommy Heron, who is uh, making this thing sound very professional. And then we've gotten and continue to get a lot of positive feedback on the theme song for this show. Uh, I agree with you. It is awesome. It is the work of uh, Young Chomsky, who is a producer and audio composer. He is uh, the producer of the excellent podcast True Anon, uh, which I do listen to. And I don't want to get canceled for that because I know they end up being <laughs> controversial at times. But uh, I, I think it's great. Uh, but anyway, Young Chomsky has the awesome theme song for this. And uh, we thank both he and Tommy for making the show great. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.